The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning. How are we doing? Good? Good to hear. Uh, I'm going to be reading you guys from Joshua chapter 5, uh, verses 13 through 15. I'm Eric, by the way. You already heard. If you could stand for the word of God, please. All right. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. I've now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in homage and asked him, what does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Good morning, fam. It's good to see you guys again. I got to tell you, well, one of you guys is awake this morning's story, so thanks. I got to tell you, there's always a scary moment for a pastor uh, when you look out at 10 o'clock and there's like three people in the room. (laughs) And I get it, Southern California, right? But there's always like this, there's always this panic. Like, no one is going to show up to church today at all. What is going to happen? And then you, you look after worship, and it's like, oh, there you all are. It's good to see you. So I'm glad that you guys are here. Well, again, good morning and welcome to our Burbank, Burbank location of Story City Church. We say Burbank location because we're working really hard to relaunch our Granada Hills location. If you don't know, we had launched it right before COVID, and then that, uh, you know how that worked out. So we brought everybody back together, but uh, we are hoping to get that relaunched by Easter of next year, and we are excited about that. But no matter where we're located, as a family of churches, we have some family values. And one of those family values is that our story is God's story. What do I mean? I mean that every twist and turn of your story matters to God and to us. I mean that no one is too bad or too mad or too far from God to be found by him, to matter to him, or to us. And collectively, our stories are a part of God's redemptive story for Burbank, the Valley, Los Angeles, and the world. This is why we say the story of God for the city of LA. That's what we mean when we say those things. Now, we've been working through a a series called Centered, and we've been talking about some of the foundational things of how to love God and how to love people well. What do those things look like? And so we started uh, in the book of Job, wrestling with one of the the top questions pastors get asked. No, it's not. Pastor, can I ask you a question? That is the number one question. But it's the, where is God in the midst of evil? Where is he in the midst of suffering? And so we answered that, or we begin to look at that by looking at the book of Job. Next, we had a blistering look at the story of the entire Bible in one sermon. It was great for those of you who are here. It didn't go over four hours, right? So that part was really good. And then uh, last week, one of our elders, Josh Wright, kicked off this part of the series by helping us understand the character and nature of God the Father. And so today, we'll be looking at the character and nature of God the Son. All right? So let's pray, and we'll jump into that part. Father God, I I thank you for uh, today. I thank you that you are with us, that you are present. I thank you that uh, this is all about you. And so, uh, Lord, as I speak this morning, I pray that you would help us to to not be distracted by anything, to not be, uh, Lord, um, uh, discouraged by anything, but to be encouraged by who you are, to to know you more, to love you more. And I pray that we would leave here more uh, passionate about who you are. 
And so I pray that you would uh, help us to understand, to be clear about who you are this morning and to leave knowing you a little bit better. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So last week, uh, Elder Josh said that um, the very essence of who God is tells the gospel story. And while we can't really understand how God is triune or three in one, it's, it's difficult, meaning he's not three separate gods. Uh, it's, it, it also means he's not one God who presents himself in three different ways, but he is three distinct persons of one essence uh, one God, three distinct persons of the same substance. I know that's really confusing. Don't worry, I'm confused too. Uh, that's the Trinity. We can understand, though, the role that each person of the Trinity plays. And so we're going to get more into the Trinity itself in a couple of weeks. But for now, God's very essence is a story of the gospel. God the Father is creator, the parent who lovingly made us for a relationship with him to be a part of the family. He also designed and created and empowered a plan, that uh, plan of salvation when we were separated from him. God the Son, he is that plan of salvation in action. He is love embodied. He is the, the plan of salvation, the physical embodiment uh, of that love through that sacrifice to us. And so he is the sacrifice, the lamb, the one that delivered salvation by his death and resurrection from the cross. God, the spirit is the one that brings us to life. He calls us into life with the father. He lives in us and empowers us to live out that salvation and gives us gifts as he deems uh, we will specifically be needed to, uh, to carry out the mission that God has given each of us. And so we'll talk more about that later on in this series as well. But again, today we're focusing specifically on the sun. Now, one of my favorite uh, movie scenes of all time comes from a deeply theological movie called Teledega Nights, the ballad <laughs> of Ricky Bobby. And there's this scene where the character Ricky Bobby is sitting down to say grace over the meal. And he says, dear six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus and your golden fleece diaper, don't even know a word yet. To which his father-in-law interrupts and says, he was a man. He had a beard. And Ricky Bobby responds. He says, listen, when it's your turn to say grace, you can pray to whatever Jesus you want to. But this is the Jesus that I like, baby Jesus. And while it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, this does bring up this incredible point for us about uh, many of us have, I think, different ideas of who Jesus is. And they're not, all, they're not always the correct or full picture of who Jesus is. And so it's important for us to understand this so that we have uh, maybe some commonality. Again, these are these bedrock ideas, these foundational ideas for us of how do we fully love and, and apprentice Jesus if we don't know who he is. And so understanding the character and nature of who he is is really the goal for today. And so let's go back to the scripture that Eric read so well for us this morning. Joshua 5, 13 to 15. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. This is not a good moment, okay? This is, this is not a good moment. This is like an issue, okay? Joshua approached him cautiously and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? This is an incredible response. Neither, he replied, I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Now remember, the Israelites are on God's mission to come in and take the promised land. God has told them it's going to be war. This is what you're going to do. And he set up Joshua and said, you're going to lead the people of Israel in war against these other nations that I have come to bring judgment on. And so I've asked you to lead these people into battle. So then 
Joshua would be the commander of the army of the Lord in some ways. And here we have this person saying, no, I am the commander of the Lord's army. And we get some idea of what happens. And Joshua bows down with his face to the ground in homage to him and says, what does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet. The place you are standing is holy. That's significant. Underline that, circle it, highlight it in your Bible. It's an important one. And Joshua obeys. Okay, so Joshua is getting ready to take Jericho. Jericho is a key city. Uh, It's a key area that stood along some of the biggest trade routes that connected uh, Egypt from the rest of uh, up into Europe, up to Italy, all of those areas. It connected two different um, kingdoms. And so it was a very strategic area, both for military purposes and for trading purposes. And so Jericho is one of those cities that's key to hold that route. And so as, as he's looking at taking this, this is a, a key battle. This is why the, the Bible highlights this particular city. So he's preparing for war. He's going to take this large city, and he encounters this person with his sword out. Again, he's afraid. This isn't like a cosplay moment. Like this is a, this is a person with a real sword, okay? And he's not standing there in a position of peace. It, the sword is drawn. That, I mean, that's, that's not like, hey, I've just got it on me, and hey, you should pay attention to me. He's literally standing there with it out. This is, again, a, a crucial moment. Now, he tells Joshua he is a commander of the Lord's army. So who is this? We get some clues to who it is. But for us, this is what we call a theophany. A theophany means an appearance of God in human form. Or more specifically, the Christianese word for this is Christophany. It means an appearance of Jesus before he took on human nature. So Jesus has always existed. And this is an appearance of Jesus before he became, uh, took on human nature in addition. Now, Not every time the Bible uses angel of the Lord does it mean it's a theophany or a Christophany. From Frozen? Yeah, no, not quite the same thing. (laughs) But the the pre-incarnate Christ, pre-incarnate meaning before he took on human flesh, this term can actually refer to an angel who serves the God of Israel. And so the the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ can go by that name, the angel of the Lord, or he can go by other names. But we're clued into the fact that this is something different by two specific things. First, we know this isn't just an angel because Joshua worships him and isn't rebuked. The second thing is because he says, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. This is exactly what God does with Moses when he talks to him from the burning bush and he gives him his name, I am. And so we know that these two things together show us that this is something special. This is something different. This isn't just any angel. This is actually the pre-incarnate Jesus. And this is what we're doing. Now, the Bible is not afraid to condemn people for worshiping angels. How do we know this? We see this in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. John, the apostle John, has a vision where he's carried up to heaven, and he encounters this angel, and he writes this uh, in verses 8 to 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The the word there for worship God means worship God alone. The worship should not go to me. That's wrong. And so in other words, the angels cannot accept worship. It's not appropriate for them to accept worship. And so we see there's a huge difference between this angel's response and the word that we get, the angel of the Lord. And why is this important? 
Well, it's important to understand, again, who Jesus is so we truly understand what he's all about. Here we have Jesus introducing himself as a commander of the Lord's army with a sword in his hand. John later goes on to write, uh, remember, this is his best friend on earth, the one that spent all this time with him, and now he describes him, the risen Jesus, as different. Here's how he describes the risen Jesus, Revelation 19, 11 to 16. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on, a white, hor- on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus is the commander of the Lord's armies. Now that depiction really stands in stark contrast for maybe the ways that we have always pictured Jesus. We know that he came as suffering servant to fulfill the promises, but that doesn't mean he stayed a suffering servant. He does. He's always suffering servant, but he is also commander. See, the problem is, is that sometimes we, we get these ideas that that warrior king cannot be synonymous with servant sufferer, but they are. In Jesus, they're perfectly Balanced. He is the suffering servant and he is the warrior king. Jesus is both. And sometimes I think we have this picture of Jesus as this, this super meek and super mild hippie that sort of walks around and he's always talking about love. And, and certainly that is a part of who Jesus is, but it's not all of who Jesus is. And the problem is that when we see Jesus that way, there's this tendency for us to see Jesus as buddy Jesus or like I said, hippie Jesus, or super friendly Jesus. But the truth is, he is the commander of the Lord's army. He is God Almighty. The the Bible says that it's through him and by him all things are made. Creation happened because of Jesus. That power is Jesus' power. Does it make sense? The, the, The idea of Jesus is so much more sometimes than we give him. The depiction of Jesus, of suffering servant and, 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 and conquering king, is, is, is hard to reconcile. How do we reconcile the two? Because Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How do we balance that? I think we find the answer in what Paul wrote to the people in Philippi. And so Philippians chapter two, verses five to eight says this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. This word likeness doesn't mean appearance. It means, it means in all the same ways, he became human. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Jesus is fully God, but also chose to adopt fully a human nature. He became 100% God and 100% man at the same time. How? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. 
The Bible doesn't tell us how he did it. And so because it doesn't tell us, it's not really for us to try and figure out. It's not something that we can uh, comprehend. And so we just have to go, okay, either have faith that Jesus did that or he didn't. But why he did it is something I believe we can understand. And so if you're taking notes today, this is our first observation for the day. Jesus is not on our side. Jesus is not on our side. You're like, Pastor, what the heck are you talking about? Have you ever had somebody, have you ever been on a sports team and somebody prayed, Lord, help us win today? (laughs) Have you ever wondered what happens if there's a Christian on the other team praying the exact same thing? (laughs) Like, who does God choose? Does he go, well, you said it first, so this game's yours. (laughs) Best out of three, I just got to go, you know, two out of one, I don't know. Does he, you know, is he like, well, you were a better Christian this week, so I'll honor your prayer instead of the other prayer? I mean, whose team is he on? The only team that we know God is not a part of is the Green Bay Packers. (laughs) I love you, Chris, even if I don't like your team. (laughs) And you're probably going to win today, but that's all right. (laughs) Jesus allows all kinds here, I'm just saying. Okay, but remember, remember that we started with this story of Joshua. And Jesus is standing there as the commander of the Lord's army, and he gives us a clear message. Joshua says, are you for us or against it? And Jesus said, neither. Are you on my side or not? It's not about us. And so while Jesus is absolutely for us, he is not on our side because we are not the heroes or the point of the story. Make sense? You guys with me? He is absolutely for us. Jesus is for us but he's not on our side. We are either on his side or we are not. Sometimes we get to this place where we think Jesus is like our beck and call. Like Jesus is our attack dog to be used when life is hard and we're like, God, these people are harassing me. Go get them. Bring your judgment down on those people. Or when we're scared or alone or fearful, we're like, Jesus is our blankie. Like I need you to comfort me, make me feel better. And while Jesus does do those things in those ways or in some of those ways, He can't be used by us because he doesn't belong to us. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that there's times where we can feel like Jesus needs to do what we tell him to do. And can I just be frank with you? That is not the commander of the Lord's army. And when we think that way, we're not seeing him that way. Jesus died and rose again, not so that we could have our way in the universe, but so that we would actually belong to the Father. He bought us for a price. He purchased us. We don't like talking about those words today because it brings up all this imagery of of, of chattel slavery and all this other stuff, but the truth is that we were slaves to sin and death, and Jesus redeemed us. He purchased us. We are owned by him, and then he does something incredible. He, He adopts us into his family as beloved sons and daughters, heirs with Christ. So Jesus chose to take on human nature and then submit fully to God, even to death, because he must seek the best interest of God and bring full glory to God. I said before, the Bible isn't about us, it's about God. And so Jesus didn't ultimately redeem us because he loves us. That's not why he did it. He does love us, but that's not the reason that he went to the cross and rose. 
He's the point. And so if God is the most high, this is going to get a little deep for a second, but if God is the most high, the most perfect, the most right, and the most good, then nothing else can compare to him or come close to compare to him, then the thing that he must value the most is that which is supremely valuable, meaning that God must love himself above all things. And so everything he does must be for his own glory, for his own sake, because anything that he does for the sake of anything else would be saying that is more valuable than him. And so he must value himself. In valuing himself, he allows us to come in so that we can value him as well because he is the most worthy of value. John Piper says it like this. Redemption, salvation, and restoration are not God's ultimate goal. He performs these for the sake of something greater, namely the enjoyment he has in glorifying himself. If God were not infinitely devoted to the preservation, display, enjoyment of his own glory, we could have no hope of finding happiness in him. God's ultimate goal, therefore, is to preserve and display his infinite and awesome greatness and worth. That is his glory. God would be unrighteous if he valued anything more than what is supremely valuable. But he himself is supremely valuable. If he did not take infinite delight in the worth of his own glory, he would be unrighteous. And so this is the reason that Jesus took on human nature. This is the reason that Jesus brings us back to the Father because it brings glory to the Father. Glory just means honor, fame. It brings honor and fame to God. It makes God good. Since Jesus is fully God, his voluntary surrender brings glory to God and pleases the Holy Father. So we are saved for God by God, not saved for God for, by God for ourselves. We are saved for God by God, not saved by God for ourselves. If you think about what I'm saying here, this means that Oftentimes we're like, God, I need you to bless my life. And we sort of live in this way. We're like, Lord, here's where I'm going. I want you to come alongside of me. And if this is true, that we are saved for God, by God, then that means that we have to say, God, what do you want with my life? And where do you want me to go? But that's really hard. Because oftentimes God does what he does with Abraham and he says, just go, I'll tell you where you're going later. We go, nope, can't do it. <laughs> okay, so why does the whole two natures thing matter? Since Jesus is fully God and fully man, wh what does this matter? Well, throughout history, people have claimed that Jesus was just God in human form, but he wasn't actually human. The Bible's clear that's not the case. Or that God, Jesus wasn't God until he died, and then God somehow elevated him to Godhood at that point, which is not true. Or that he's a lesser God of the big Father God. We see some of those things in uh, religions like Mormonism or uh, Jehovah's Witness, which is why the, those are not Christian religions. But those views don't line up with what the Bible says about Jesus. Now, I have an example to help us understand this, okay? First, the only person who has been wrong can offer forgiveness for that wrong. So uh, Sam and Catrice, could you come up here for just a second for me? All right. I, I just, these two amazing people serve our church in such incredible ways. They are awesome. You guys need to know them and love them if you don't. Yeah. Even to the point of standing here just, you know, randomly like, what is God going to do? Was that me or you? Oh, okay, it's all good. Okay, so here's the deal. If Sam sneaks up behind me and hits me over the head with his guitar, 
and beats me nearly half to death, which is probably the only way you're going to get me, brother. I'm just saying. <laughs> from behind. It might be close, but still, I got you. Unless you come up from behind, right? Okay. <laughs> Maybe later. I don't know if I have time. People don't want to stay. We could do the pay-per-view or something like that. I don't know. All right. If he beats me nearly half to death, can he come up and say sorry and Catrice forgive him? No. Why not? Because Catrice wasn't the one that was wronged. Right? Now, Catrice really had nothing to do with it except probably encouraging him. Like, go, Sam, go. <laughs> okay. If Sam comes to me and says, I'm sorry, can I say, Catrice, I forgive you? No. Why not? Because he's the one that actually committed the offense, right? Not Catrice. And so I can't forgive Catrice for something that he did. And he can't, I can't say, I forgive you when he's the one that did it. She can't offer forgiveness on my behalf. So here's the problem. The only ones that can offer forgiveness and the only ones that can truly say sorry are the two parties, the one that was offended and the one that did the offense. Does that make sense? All right, thank you guys. I appreciate that. That was good. Okay. So here's the deal. Humanity has been treasonously rebellious against God. Since we have been treasonously rebellious against God, only God can offer forgiveness because he is the one that was offended, right? Since humanity is the guilty party, only humanity can pay the price for our sins. If Jesus isn't fully God, he can't offer forgiveness. If Jesus isn't fully human, he can't pay the penalty as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But since Jesus has both natures, he can both forgive and be the perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty and die in the place of humanity. This brings us to reconciliation with the Father once and for all. Do you understand the correlation? Only Jesus is perfectly set up to be both the representation of humanity because he is human. And so he can pay the penalty for death that we all deserve. He can do it on our behalf. And because he's sinless, he's the perfect sacrifice. He meets the conditions that's required. Because he's God, he can actually offer that forgiveness to us, and we get to see that accomplished in him. This is that, what Josh talked about, that embodiment of that salvation rescue plan for us. It's, it's in the flesh. There's something incredible about that. It's something that, that shows us how much God thought ahead about what needed to happen for us and how well he had this planned and, and the incredible uh, uh, just, just how amazing that makes Jesus. Take a look with me. At, take a look with me at Mark chapter two, verses five to twelve, and we're going to see this in the Bible. See who Jesus claims to be. There's a lot of people who say Jesus never claimed to be God, and that's a misunderstanding. Mark chapter two, five to twelve says, "Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven.'" But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive God? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to him, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, 
to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he's backing this up. He's saying, so you know that one is true, I'm going to show you the other. He told the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I love this. Even in Jesus' miracle, what does it do? It brings glory to God. Why did Jesus do the miracle? To show that he is God, to bring glory to God. Jesus proved his claim to be God by showing he had ultimate power over all creation. He had power over the physical, and that shows and proves he has power in the spiritual as well. He has power over creation because he is God. If you're taking notes today, this is the second and final observation for the day. Jesus is was and will be. Jesus is, was, and will be. Jesus has existed for all eternity and will continue to exist for all eternity. He claimed to be God, has always been God, and always will be God. The Apostle John says, John 1, 1 to 4, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, this is Jesus, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Take a look with me at Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heavens and on earth, the visible and the invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself or the things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's the embodiment of that plan. In Hebrews 1, 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. So Jesus has always existed. Jesus claims to be the I am, the name that God identifies himself with and talks about being around for things that didn't happen in his time on earth. John chapter 8, 53 to 59, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? This is the Pharisees talking to Jesus. And Jesus says, if I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one that glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. Listen to this. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, you're not even 50 years old yet. And you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claims definitively to be God. So they picked up stones to throw at him. They understood exactly what he was saying. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Jesus says he was there when Satan was kicked out of heaven. Luke 10, 18, he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So Jesus existed before he was born in the human history. Jesus will forever be fully human and fully God. Now he has a resurrected body, but it's, he still has that body and he will for all eternity. He will always be fully God and fully human from now on. 
He just lives in a resurrected body. And all things will forever be under his reign. We see this in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Listen to this. John, his best friend, says this, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He passes out. That's how incredible God is. The resurrected Jesus is. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus, the Christ, the promised Savior, rescuer, is our hope, our Savior, our God, the one who chose to pay our death penalty sentence with his own life to bring glory to God and to ensure we could be reconciled to the Father for all who apprenticed Jesus. Because of what Jesus did as the one who is fully God and fully man, we have the chance, the opportunity to have a relationship with God and live as adopted sons and daughters instead of being sentenced to hell. But check this out. Check out the future with Jesus. Revelation 7, 9 to 17. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. If you don't think issues of race are biblical issues, you've misunderstood the Bible. Listen. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, which no one could remember, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where do they come from? He said, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb, this goes back to Jesus, who is at the center of the throne, will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen? My hope is that you'll be more passionately in love with Jesus. This week, as you think about what was said today, that you will not only be more in love with him, but will be able to articulate the gospel more fully to those around you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for all that you have done. It's overwhelming to think of how great and, and glorious you are how loving, kind you are. I thank you that you loved us, not because of what we've done, but because of who you are. Not for our sake, but for your glory, for the glory of the Father. We pray that you continue to move in our lives as we trust you with who you are in Jesus' name.